Today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast, we have Pastor Stephen Furtick. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. I got to tell you, you know, when I when I got your book and read your book, but also just heard more of your story, and we shared a little bit about this before we started, and you know, in our audience out there, and you guys are all over the world, just it's amazing people with hearts to do something and accomplish things in your life, and and. You know, as I was recovering from my accident and just trying to figure out, I had this amazing blessing of a second chance in my life of life, and I had to determine how do I partner with God to make, you know, to make this second chance something that was actually, uh, that I could give back, that I could leave a legacy, that I could pour into the people around me, that my funeral someday, what they were going to say about me was going to be something that got me excited, because as I look back and when that accident happened, that's not where I was in life. And for me, one of the biggest things is I started having some of these big dreams in my life. And, and God kept putting this message on my heart about discipling nations. Um, but there was this huge gap between kind of this dream of having a life of impact and my present circumstances, not just health-wise, but just was I equipped? Was I qualified? Um, and uh, Stephen, you've written this incredible book called Unqualified, How God Uses Broken People to Do Big Things. And I love this message. And, and folks listening, we're going to dive into some areas here and go through some things that I know for a fact. They're going to encourage you. They're going to equip you. They're going to they're going to give you the 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 tools and the permission you need to just start taking those small steps forward in your life. So, Stephen, I know you leave a, you you um, you lead the Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yes. Uh, you and your wife founded that just ten years ago. It's grown to twenty thousand people. What that tells me is just the power of your message. How you're equipping people is just drawing people in to the work that God's doing through you and your team and your staff there. So um, I love that about you. You've written a number of bestsellers. Um, I love the title "Crash the Chatterbox." Yeah. <laughs> I actually need to get that book and read it just because the title sounds so awesome. Well, do you know the chatterbox? Has he spoken to you lately? Do you are you familiar with that guy? Is that the is that the guy in my head that's always telling yeah. me that I yeah, I don't yeah. rate and and I and there's yeah. I didn't do enough today and I'm kind of a jerk and Well, no matter what area that you want in today, he's gonna tell you where you lost every night before you go to bed and he's gonna remind you of what you need to be anxious about tomorrow. So you gotta, you gotta know what to do with that guy. And if I could, if I could tell a story real quick, Love John, to. I want to get yeah. ahead of schedule here. But it's kind of that book was about dealing with that voice, you know, we all have. And then I realized that this book was needed. And you referenced something that I, I want to share the story because everybody has had an experience like this, if not exactly this. Um, I was watching a sermon on YouTube one Saturday afternoon, and I was getting ready to preach. And we have a Saturday night uh, service at our church. And so I'm, I'm kind of getting ready, kind of watching something in the background. And when that sermon was over, you know, YouTube will give you a recommended for you uh, next thing you should watch things. So I was like, hey, you know, let's let's do it. I'm, I'm going to put my I'm going to put my future in the hands of YouTube. I'm going to watch this next video. And the next video was an interview with a theologian who I knew of. I heard of the guy for years. He's a legend. And they were interviewing him about issues in the church. And so I clicked it uh, and walked away. And they went into a lightning round where they were asking the theologian his opinion on different people and issues in the church. And all of a sudden, I heard my name, the guy interviewing. He goes, 
Stephen Furtick. Oh, so you perked up right away, didn't you? Oh, man, I felt like the man. I walked back in. They're talking about me. You know how you get kind of self-important. You know, it's always it's always cool to hear your name, except for the fact when I walked, when I walked back in, I could tell by the expression on the theologian's face that he wasn't exactly like my my uh, my my friend on Facebook. He wasn't like <laughs> I could just tell he he dropped his head. He slumped his shoulders and he sighed like even considering my name was the most wearisome task that this man had co- contemplated in years. So he sighs and his answer when asked, what do you think about Stephen Furtick? He said it in one word that ended up becoming the title of my book. And the word was unqualified. And he said it, John, the way he said it, I wish I could do it like he did. I can't do it justice, but he said it with this finality, this gravity. He goes, he just unqualified. And then he moved on and I've never met the guy didn't know he knew who I was. And what surprised me in that moment, and maybe what we can talk about a little bit today, because I know everybody deals with it, is that I didn't disagree with him. What he said was exactly how I feel. I didn't even have a comeback. You know, there would have been a time where I would have been thinking of some words that I could come back that would make unqualified sound like a Valentine's Day card, you know, like, because I'm a fighter. But yeah, we, instead, we call that delayed intelligence, right? When we think the, about it, we're like, oh, Bam, that was what I should have said. But I didn't even have that reaction. My first reaction was, absolutely. I mean, you don't even know the half of it. Of course I'm unqualified. You know, I'm a guy who had a vision for my life since I was young. I was 16, and I wanted to start a church one day and help people, and now I'm doing that. But the essential question that has never stopped in my head was, do I have what it takes? Mm. And I always thought I would cross over this invisible line of success or size or status or even just spiritual maturity, where I would now have arrived, and you don't deal with that anymore. And I don't know if this would be true to your experience as well, John, you've done a lot in life, you've accomplished a lot, but for me, that still hasn't gone away. And the more I begin talking to people, whether they were moms, coaches, people just trying to hold down a job, students, pastors, any kind of leader, dads, it, it, was, it was constant that when I said the word unqualified, the word that the guy used on YouTube to summarize me, yeah. people are like, that's how I feel. I feel that way uh, in an area of my life or in, in many areas of my life. So I wanted to write to those people saying, join the club. And I actually, I sent the theologian who said that a thank you note <laughs> because you know he meant it as a criticism. And not only did I get a book title out of it, but it actually put a name to something I've felt my whole life. And it helped me realize that um, the feeling of being unqualified doesn't mean you're not called. And so this is a book about calling. You know, when you talk about that feeling, uh, I got to tell you, there's been so many times in life um, I have felt that way. Uh, I can't tell. That feeling was so strong. I used to be a, a Navy fighter pilot. And the first day that I flew off a carrier in the combat, that, that I was just drowning in that feeling walking up to the plane that day. Uh, but you know, there, there's something, uh, you know, this is something we all struggle with and you were, you were thinking about this, you heard this word, you're putting this book together. Something you wrote, uh, was that this is, this book was hard for you to write. Uh, what made this heart, this book, this message, uh, kind of more of a challenge to you maybe in some of the other things that you've done? Okay. Yeah. That's an interesting question. I mean, I think getting past the point of, you're unqualified. So there's the basic idea. If you look through the Bible, 
and look at the people that God really used. Not our Sunday school flannel graph version of who God used, because by the time we get done with Moses, Moses is the man. Yeah. Moses the Red Sea. Moses was a murderer, a fugitive, and in some ways a coward. And he ended up dying on the edge of the promised land because he struck the rock that God instructed him to speak to. But by the time we teach him to our kids, you know, you need to be like Moses, have faith like Moses. And I'm sure Moses would weigh in and say, if he could speak back, hey, I didn't know that the book of Exodus was going to be written with me as the hero in chapter 14. But we see the big picture. You know, when we look at the Bible, we see Abraham as the father of faith. We see Jacob as the one that the nation of Israel came through. Abraham lied and said his wife was his sister. Jacob was a deceiver from the womb. The apostle Paul, toward the end of his ministry, was still defending his credentials to the Corinthian church. And there were people saying he couldn't preach. So we assume that our heroes and even people we respect in our everyday life have something we don't have, know something we don't know, can do something we can't do. And the first step of me writing this book was to just get real about it. And instead of trying to present this pretend, because I, I like to come across like I've got it together and to write a book about how I've never felt that way, whether it's in preaching or leading, to get to that place of honesty was a challenge. But the second thing was to move past the cliche, because we have cliches about this. You know, God doesn't uh, call the qualified. He qualifies the called. OK, that's nice. You put that on your Put that on your Christian T-shirt, put that on your screensaver. But the fact is, I need to do this thing. I need to know how to do it, and I don't have what it takes. So to me, it was getting to a place of not only saying, when I am weak, then I am strong. That was Paul's great verse on the subject from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But how does that work? And so I talk about acceptance a lot in the book and accepting that God loves you like you are, accepting yourself as you are. But here's the big one accepting God's process of change. And that word process is what makes it messy, as you mentioned. The word, if it were a project, that would be one thing. If there were an end date to this, and after I complete these steps, I'm gonna be ready for my calling. But to try to help people to see that this, this process isn't ending and it's open-ended, and that you have to make peace with the process, that's a little more difficult to talk about than seven steps to master something. And yet it's in the process that God creates the greatest change. So I think achieving a level of real honesty that people can relate to is one level and realizing, secondly, that there are going to be no easy answers to this, that there's not some future version of you that God is going to use, but he's going to use you right now with your flaws and sometimes even because of your flaws. I'm not sure that's the message we want. I think we want the message that God's going to fix us before he uses us. But the fact is he's going to use you in your brokenness to accomplish it. And that's hard to come to terms with. You know, that is such a great point. You know, it's not like there's a workbook that you can go through with a small group and come up with the answer to all this and be 100% ready to move forward. And and that does make it challenging for us. And, you know, I'd love to start at the beginning because I know there's people listening to this and they're like, man, I'm, I'm relating to everything Stephen is saying here. So what, what do you think are some of the things that just hold people back or slow them down or that they just really struggle with just moving into an area of almost kind of, uh, you know, getting strong in this and healing in this and just developing that, you know, seeing themselves the way God sees them? 
See, I, I love the way that you immediately went to the practical side because there's probably not a Christian out there that's going to disagree on the surface with what we're saying, no. that God uses people that we, we all know that we have imperfections. That's nothing new. So the question becomes how and what is it that's really holding me back? Yeah. Okay, well, there is a certain type of belief that if you, if you really don't believe that God can use you as you are right now, then you're never going to get started. If you never get started, you're never going to experience change. So if you're waiting, if you're waiting on that indefinite point in the future, it's never going to happen. But here's mm-hmm. one that I think is becoming more, at least more and more pronounced every day from my vantage point as a 36-year-old pastor in the year 2016, I think that comparison is a silent killer. And if I could break that down a little bit, I would, I would venture to say that there's never been a time, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's never been a time where we've had more access to more images of what we think other people's life is like, or their leadership is like, or their family is like, and one way I've said it before, John, is that we're running around comparing our behind the scenes to everybody else's highlight reel. And we're, we're measuring ourselves against a standard that isn't even reality. And so we're, we're not comparing ourselves to the, to the reality of someone else's life. We're comparing ourselves to our imagination of the reality of someone else's life. So we see what they post and we see what they project and we see what they present. And now we've created such a culture of persona and pretension that I learn how to project the image. This is one way of explaining it is that I realized one day that there are three different me's, okay? Three different, three different me's that, that, that I'm dealing with from All day right. to day. And one is like me as I am, um, then there's future me, future Furtick. That's the guy who's going to overcome all the stuff that I'm currently struggling with. He's going to be wiser, stronger, better uh, in every possible way, more balanced. That's who I'm going to be in five years. That's who I'm going to be when I finally get the chance to, to, to slow down and work on these things. I'm going to have this breakthrough, future, future Furtick. And then there's fake Furtick. So I've got flawed Furtick. That's who I am right now. I got future verdict. That's who I'm going to be. And then I got fake verdict, the guy I want people to meet in the process. <laughs> and, and the realization I'm coming to is that God can't bless that guy. I use the biblical story of Jacob because Jacob dressed up pretending to be his brother Esau. And he got a blessing from his father Isaac. But it wasn't until 21 years later when Jacob was wrestling with God alone as himself that he really got the true blessing, where, where God blessed him and gave him a new name, Israel. God can't bless who you pretend to be. You can succeed in many ways in people's eyes pretending. You can possibly even uh, achieve a, a season uh, of success through that. But I think that this culture of constant comparison, where everything is on a surface level, is one of the things that's keeping us from truly finding our validation, not in, not in how people liked our post or if it's not social media for you, uh, not by a certain amount that I hit or a certain status that I achieved, but 
achieving and fulfilling God's calling on my life in this season because I'm too busy looking over at what this guy wants to convince me that he's doing. When the fact is, I might be admiring someone who's secretly miserable, but they're presenting an image of happiness and I'm chasing an illusion. Yeah, because when we compare our worst to the perception of somebody else's best, we will never measure up. It's not possible. And the conclusion that I always come to is, man, I'm not, I, I, I'm not good enough. I, I, I don't measure up. Um, and, you know, when people are there, because, you know, we all do this, especially, you're right, because the, the world is just constantly raining down on us um, the best of everybody else without really seeing their authentic self. So how do we pull back from what the world is pushing in on us and work through these feelings of not being qualified, of not measuring up, of not being worthy? Okay, I think the key word is context. Mm. I think the key, key word is context. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the basic rules they teach you about preaching, right, is that you can't preach a text without putting it in context. Well, shouldn't that be the same? Shouldn't that, shouldn't that be the same basic idea of how we evaluate our lives? Um, co context is powerful, though. It can work both ways because, yeah, sometimes you can see how, how, how much better somebody appears than you and feel like you're inadequate. On the other hand, and this is the part that we don't talk about as much, I can spend my life comparing myself to people who make me feel big and yet never really realize that maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm comparing myself to somebody who has two talents when God gave me five. So either way I compare, it can be destructive if I don't keep it in context. If I compare myself to somebody who has gifts that I don't have, opportunities that I don't have, I'll always feel like I'm insufficient. If I compare myself to somebody, on the other hand, who has less opportunity than me, then I'm going to feel superior and I'm going to become prideful and I may even become complacent. So on one hand is condemnation. I'm not as good as that guy. On the other hand is complacency. Well, I'm doing better than them. Um, one time, this is, this is pretty funny to me because, you know, as a preacher yeah. uh, in, a, in a town like Charlotte, North Carolina, I'll go out from time to time and people will recognize me and they'll know who I am. And, you know, sometimes you can get a big head about it. And, and I was, I was, I was at, a, at an event one time preaching and a celebrity was there who was like a true celebrity. One of the most famous people. One of these A-listers, right? Yeah, yeah. A plus, 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 plus lister. This is not preacher famous, okay, where, where somebody stops you in Chili's. This is not that kind of famous or or somebody recognized you, this is like a real famous guy. And he, uh, he was going on vacation and I asked him, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to Turks and Caicos. I said, cool, man. I said, I took my wife for our anniversary and, uh, and we had a great time. And he said, really, where did you stay? And I, I said, I don't remember the name of the, the hotel, the resort. But I was proud of the resort, you know, that I took my wife to Turks and Caicos. To me, that's like a big accomplishment, you know. I yeah. took my wife to Turks and Caicos. And uh, I said, how about you, man? Where are you staying? And, and he said, I don't remember the name of the island. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, well, I'm bragging about my resort that I stayed at. This guy has rented the whole island. And it was a moment of perspective and context for me. And I think we have to keep ourselves in a place where, you know, ultimately we're, we're constantly we're constantly grateful for where we are and content with what we have. But we're also stretching towards something that's beyond us. And if we're if we're operating 
from our sphere of service. That's what Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians. And I encourage everyone to go and read 2 Corinthians 10, particularly pick it up around verse 13, where Paul is, is defending his ministry to a group of people who have basically said that he's unqualified. They said that he was unimpressive as a speaker. And in defending his credentials, he doesn't, he doesn't defend his credentials by his accomplishments, although he had many of them. Instead, he says, I am, I am going to boast within my sphere of service. And I love that phrase, sphere, sphere of service. Paul is saying, you know, within the assignment that God has given me, that's how I'm going to measure success in this. So I'm going to measure each day. I'm going to measure each season and my effectiveness by whether or not I'm working the circle that God has given me and maximizing what he's put in my hands. And to me, if God gave me two talents and I turn them into four, that's success in God's mind, just as much as the guy who turned five into 10. The only thing that I can't do is bury my one because I'm afraid of what's going to happen uh, if I step out. To me, that's the only definition of failure. And I try to judge my life each day based on what I did with what I had. Well, you know, that's an interesting concept. You know, if you take that sphere of service idea and you bring it up to today, people listening, right? A lot of our listeners, they're business owners, entrepreneurs, they're, they're you know, they're people in the, they're serving their ministry, which I define as service, but they're serving in the marketplace. That is where a lot of our listeners, that's their heart. So how, how would you share with them that concept of sphere of service so they can really start I think connecting what you're talking about to what it looks like as they live it out in their life. I, I love your questions. Um, what, what I love about that one is it brings back to mind so many conversations that I've had with people who are in the marketplace. And I don't even love the designation between ministry and marketplace. And I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm you know with what you I'm there. Thinking. Yeah, it shouldn't be. Yeah, there should, yeah, but, there, it should be totally integrated. There should not be this this uh, false deception that a lot of us have that church is ministry, anything outside of church is not ministry. And that is, that's not how God created us to operate. Exactly. Because one of, one of my church members was beating up on himself one day because he makes money, does well, he's a leader, he's successful. And his question to me was, what does it feel like to know you're really making a difference? Mm. I said, what do you mean, man? He's got good kids. He's a good dad. Uh, I said, what do you mean, man? He said, well, you touch people's lives directly. What I do, I make money, I this, I that. And he had, he had classified his sphere of service as being smaller than mine. What I was able to do for him, though, and it only took about three minutes, all I had to do was help him open his eyes to the opportunities all around him. And I started to get him to reevaluate what was in his, what was in his circle. Because what we do is what Moses did when God said, hey, I'm going to use you to lead the people of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. Moses wanted to know how. Moses didn't feel qualified. Moses didn't feel fit. And he had good reason not to. God's first question, what is that in your hand? This is another way of saying what's in your sphere. Mm-hmm. What, what is around you? By the time I got done talking to the guy, we both came to the conclusion that in some ways he has more opportunities for ministry than I do in terms of being in people's lives that are never going to come to church, in terms of affecting people's economic reality, in terms of actually shaping a certain sector. I mean, the, the, guy, the guy had become blind to his own sphere. 
And I think the the phrase is so important, sphere of service. Mm -hmm. We live in a world that is consumed with spheres of status. And so we assume that the person who has the most evident status, and we bring this over into spirituality, oh, the preacher, that's the guy God's really using. I don't see it that way. I see that the preacher is only powerful to the extent that he or she can empower the people to occupy their sphere of service, to occupy their sphere. So it's always tempting, whatever arena that you're in, to think that there's a greater potential for impact in another one. And my experience is that we wildly overestimate what we could do in somebody else's sphere and wildly underestimate what we could do in our own. Why do you think that is? That, somebody, that is a great point, Stephen. What, what do you think is behind that? Maybe part of it is an escapism. Mm-hmm. That if I'm dealing with the issues of my situation, the fantasy of how much easier things would be with different pressures, whether I had a different wife, whether I didn't have this teenager, whether I had someone else's income or gift set. Um, oh, boy, you just you're, you're unlocking all kinds of ideas. I'm having to choose one thought because. Well, you know what I'm I hearing, though? That, it sounds like you, you're dropping back into this mode of comparison. And that 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 is always yeah. just lock you right back into the 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 concrete you're stuck in. Well, that's the that's the uh, that's the behavior that that is definitely mm-hmm. the the problem is the comparison. But I think your question is deeper. I think you're saying what's driving that, yeah. which is important. Uh, it 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 could come from different places for different people. Let let me speak personally. Yeah. I, I think I think it's in my life because I spend so much time with me and I'm so familiar with my weaknesses that the idea that there is another situation where my weaknesses would not be as apparent, it it serves almost as a hope because once you've, once you've gotten sick enough of yourself and your same struggles and your same dilemmas and your same issues and tendencies, there's a part of you that feels like it'd just be nice to, to have somebody else's issues, even if they're worse than mine. Uh, you know, I just like to, to try that. So it's easier to exist in an imagination of what your life could be rather than it is to stay planted in one place. And particularly pastoring a lot of young people, I see this play out. I see them move either from church to church, job to job, um, situation to situation, city to city, state to state, and only find that you can't outrun your issues forever. At some point, you have to deal with the internal stuff. And I believe this is true even in dealing with critics. You know, there have been times in our ministry and times in my life where I've been so frustrated with people criticizing me. But I found out that the the only battle I really have to win is against my inner critic. Because if my security, who I am in Christ, and my knowledge that I'm completing the assignment that he's given me, if that's intact, if that's stable, then the outside attacks or opinions will not have any power over me. But I think the reason that we go into that mode is because we are blind to what we see every day. We're not aware of it anymore. It's the same reason, it's the same reason that when I go to another city that I don't live in, I'll go and see things and do things that I don't even do in my own city as a mm-hmm. tourist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's the allure of it. It's the imagination of it. And it's ultimately the fact of becoming so familiar with our weaknesses that I think we become blind to our strengths and opportunities. 
you know, I'm as I'm just reflecting back on, you know, everything that you've said and uh, something I really keyed on early. You know, you said this is this has been a process for you, and you really talk about this personal process for yourself throughout this whole book. And I remember for me, a similar process started one day. I was actually working with a coach as I'm trying to figure out this life that God meant for me to live. And I, and what I said to him, Stephen, is, you know what? I need to really figure out how I'm wired. It was I was still focused really on me, and I was in that comparison mode. And he asked me a question that, that just changed my life. He said, why don't you figure out how God wired you and who he sees when he looks at you versus who you see in the mirror? And mm. I would love for you to just share, because it's all in the book, but what what is that process? What was it like for you, and what, what does it look like for somebody who really wants to take that journey? Because at the end of that journey, what I have found is just a place of, of just joy, contentment, excitement that, I, that I've never experienced before in, personally in my life. Uh, what, I think one great place to start with that is what I call evaluating your third words. Mm. And I use the phrase third word uh, to get to a, a, pretty, a pretty profound theological thought, which is when God introduced himself to Moses and gave Moses his assignment at the burning bush, God called himself, I am. And uh, of course the Hebrew name is Yahweh, but we translate it into English, I am, which almost seems to leave a blank to be filled in. And I think part of that is knowing that God is whatever he needs to be, whatever he chooses to be. But another interesting part of that is when God gave Moses the 10 commandments, he said, uh, one of those commandments is you shouldn't take my name in vain. Mm-hmm. And I always thought growing up that meant uh, very literally don't say Jesus Christ as a swear word and don't say, oh, my God, uh, when you're perplexed. That's about as far as I took it yeah. until I realized the Hebrew uh, understanding of taking someone's name was much more than saying their name. It was actually to identify with that person. It would be like when when Holly married me. Her, her last name was Boynot. And she she traded that name for the name Furtick. I'm not sure it was an upgrade in terms of people spelling it right. But she uh, <laughs> she took my name. When she took my name, uh, a merger happened. A merger of, of, of all of our resources, which were, were not much at the time. But when she took my name, you know, the Bible says the two become one. Well, when when I went into a relationship with God and when I gave my life to Christ, I took his name. Mm. And so now his name. I love that. Yeah, his name. I mean, I, I never saw it this way, and it changed my life when I did. Yeah. When I saw that his name, yeah. I am, is now my name. And so when, when I say things about myself, I am stupid. I, I, I am, it's not always just one word. It could be a whole sentence that we put behind that. I am. How I identify myself is a direct reflection of how I see God. And, and so I, I would encourage anyone who is in that place that you said of finding yourself, it begins with your belief about God. When, when Jesus asked Peter, uh, who do men say that I am? He was totally referring back to the, the, the conversation with Moses at the burning bush that God had thousands of years earlier when he said, I am. Now Jesus, who is God, is saying, who do men say that I am? And of course, Peter gives this answer. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, one of the prophets. The question Jesus then asks is, 
What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But the next part is the part that, that, that hit me so hard is that when, when Peter correctly identified who Jesus was, you are the Christ, son mm-hmm. of the living God, Jesus turned around to Peter and said, and I tell you that you are Peter. You are Peter. And, and he changed Peter's third word. Peter's name had always been Simon. Peter, Petros, rock, foundation. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Peter discovered who Peter was by identifying who Jesus was. And so I'm learning to change my third words and make sure that my third words are in alignment with God's third words. When I say, I am stupid, but God is in me and I took his name, well, he's not, and I have the mind of Christ. So what he is, I am. I think that's what sets our message apart as believers from just find yourself, you know, that's what your mentor uh, was referring to, find out how God wired you. And a part of that is understanding that I've been identifying myself, it, it, myself in ways over the years with these third words. I've been finishing that sentence, I am, in ways that don't reflect what, what God has said about me, but what I see in me. And I don't have all the information, so I'm going to go to God for my I am's and, and let him show me who I truly am. Because beneath the layers and layers of our disappointments and what people have said about us, and what we believed about ourselves and how our experiences have shaped us, I, I believe there is still, uh, one time, one time I, I, I remember I had bleached my hair, um, platinum blonde. It was a little phase I went through. I was 27. Did you have the beard at the time? And I was bleaching my hair. And my hair is no beard, no beard, no beard. <laughs> I, I, I just, uh, I had a, a guy tell me, hey, let's, um, let's give you that David Beckham look which of course was flattering. I was like, yeah, I want a David Beckham look. So he, so he, he bleached my hair platinum blonde. I kept it that way for a few months. And uh, then I decided to go back to black, which is my natural color. And somebody saw me after I'd gone back to my natural color. And they said, you know, black doesn't look very natural on you. And, and I thought that was hilarious, you know. But the fact is, sometimes we bleached ourselves so many times, you know, that not only do we not recognize ourselves, but we've trained people to represent a, to, to recognize a version of us that doesn't even represent reality. So I think that's a process. I don't think that's a one-time thing. I don't know what it was like for you after he told you to find how God has wired you, but I assume that it's a process that's still unfolding. It's the beginning of a journey. It's not an end point. You don't come to it in a moment. It's a, it's a process. Oh man, it, it was an absolutely a process. You know, two years I spent in the hospital recovering, just thinking about this, and and just in sometimes just minute by minute because what a some of the things I still had to go through, just hanging on this hope that God promised me that He was going to heal me and use this for His glory, and I couldn't even conceive uh, sometimes how that could, what I could possibly be doing because uh, I thought I was going to live my life in a hospital bed. I uh, didn't know what that looked like. Uh, but I'm thinking back to something you said, uh, which just struck me. I never thought about this before, right? Simon the fisherman, through this relationship mm-hmm. with Christ, now identifies himself because he's given the name Peter the Rock, of which, and look at the difference in what his life would have been as Simon the fisherman, what what he did, the impact that he would have had versus that, and I don't, and I think for a lot of people, this isn't some massive you know, chasm to jump over, some seismic shift. It's just a subtle shift. And you brought up that really the two key points of this process was really taking some time to understand who God is 
And and then really, and then once you have that in place, take the time to really, and have some men around you, women around you to help you with this. What is your identity in Christ that he's giving you? What would he call you? And I think if people really start focusing on that, how do what are your thoughts on that? And how do people start actually writing out, I am blank, the way God would fill that in? Well, the interesting thing about Simon in this illustration is that Jesus gave him a new name, Peter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yet we see in Luke 22 that when Jesus is going around the table and he's telling his disciples before his crucifixion that they're going to fall away, he looks at he looks at Peter, you know, the rock and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you to sift you as wheat. Yet I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. What got me about that is why are you still calling him Simon if he's, if he's Peter now? And that to me is so important that, that we that we understand the conflict of change and the complication of change. To, to know that Peter got that commission, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And to know that that was before his great failure, he would end up, Simon the fisherman went back fishing after Jesus was crucified, and Jesus met him there and restored him. You know, it goes to show me, John, that the process of change in my life is not an event. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't say that strongly enough. If you expect it to be an event, and we're speaking to leaders, And we're talking to people who maybe think that there is a threshold where the change will be complete. And the disappointment comes in when I thought I'd be further along or I thought I was past this and here it comes again. Mm -hmm. No, he was Peter, but he was still Simon. Uh, Another great biblical example of this, and this is maybe my favorite thing that I've ever seen in the Bible. I I was talking to a friend who teaches the Bible one day, and he brought up one interesting thing I'd never thought of before is that when God changed Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel, Jacob means deceiver or heel grabber, Israel means triumphant with God. You would expect that for the rest of scripture that God would refer to himself as, you know, the God of, the God of Jake, uh, the God of Israel, because that's Jacob's new name. Yeah, he uses both, doesn't he? He uses both, and particularly when Moses is standing before that bush that we talked about and God said, you know, tell them I am. And God is telling, God is telling uh, Moses who he is. He calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Yeah. He's always referred to as the God of Jacob when people are referring to the, you know, in who God is, right. He's the God of, and it's always Jacob. Why not Israel? Why not the better name? Why not triumphant with God? Why do you want to be the God of the heel grabber? Uh, particularly, why do you want to reveal yourself as God in that way in the, mo- in the moment with Moses where you need a whole nation to understand who you are? And the only thing I can conclude is yeah. that God's not ashamed to be identified with me in my weakness. So the key is, is 2 Corinthians 12.10, when I am weak, then I am strong. So my third words are not going to go away. If I, if I am weak, if I, if I, if I want to live in a state of denial, that's not going to bring real strength. I don't think you, you have to live in a state of denial. Uh, to me, we have to embrace what our third words are right now and how we see ourselves currently before God can begin to replace and upgrade those with the truth. And that's the step that I think we try to skip. 
we want to go right into, I am victorious. I am more than a conqueror. I am a child of God. I am beloved. I am righteous. Well, you know, put that on your mirror and say it seven times a day. Yeah, but and that turns into feel- fake it till you make it, and you always feel like you're faking it. Yeah, and you never make it. Yeah, and to make it never comes. So I think starting with the fact that I'm already accepted as Simon. Jesus loved Simon too. God was the God of Jacob too. If we can see it that way, John, I think we won't see change as God's primary. Here's another big one. Change is not God's primary objective in our lives. Relationship is. As long as we think that change, God's changing, he's changing. Yeah, he is. But the change is a byproduct of relationship. If relationship with God is the goal and change is the process, then I can be patient with the process because I'm confident in the relationship. Well, you know what I'd like to ask you, Stephen, is, you know, as you have, you know, moved toward this maturity, and I'm sure it's something, you know, that's always front of mind, qualified, unqualified, but, um, you know, assuming that, you know, you this relationship you have with God and seeing your, how you're seeing yourself really as qualified, even in your brokenness, even, you know, as the, the fake verdict, right? The, the flawed verdict you referred to before, you know, as you've gone from nothing, starting this church to the influence it has today across a dozen campuses or more and, and 20,000 people, what were some times during this growth when everything on the outside really looked like, you know what? You're doing everything right, but it's still those inner struggles that we have sometimes that really slow us down. Uh, as you, uh, were there any times that was really challenging with you where you just struggled with? Am I am I still really qualified even with everything going on in my life? Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, there are uh, the the one that I would point to that might seem a little strange, but just just go with me. Yeah, it it, it would be. When we reached a certain goal that I thought would feel more fulfilling than it felt, Mm. and I was surprised by the feeling that I didn't get. I don't know if you've had the same experience. I I can relate to that. Mm -hmm. It didn't have the joy. Um, It didn't have the, I don't know, it just felt like, I don't know. Just like, yeah, it, it feels like, like a, almost like a letdown. You thought it was going to be this huge celebration, yeah. high five, victory dance, and it happens. You're kind of like, well, okay, well, hmm, what's next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, the interesting thing about it is, I, I used to wonder why successful people went into such depression. Sometimes they become suicidal, sometimes they cope with it with drugs. I couldn't understand that, obviously, until I realized that. When you don't have success in a certain area, you have an illusion of success, right? So there's an imagination of how it's going to feel. But when you have success, now you're dealing with the reality. And if that didn't fulfill you like you thought it would, now what? And so despair sets in if you were chasing success. So I, I came to a moment within the first few years of the ministry. We started with, with eight families. Our, our core team moved here to Charlotte, North Carolina, knowing nobody. And I would meet with other pastors who are a little further along. And I met with a guy who told me he had a thousand people in his church. I remember thinking, if I could ever have a thousand people, Mm. wow. I had a picture of what that would feel like. And relatively quickly, God blessed the church and it grew to a thousand people. And it didn't feel, it felt, it was cool. I celebrated it. 
but it definitely didn't register like I thought. So I had a, I had a moment that was, that was the moment where I realized it won't matter what, what I accomplish in that moment of having a thousand people in church or selling this many books or whatever external thing that you want to attach to it. I want to live for the moment after the moment. And here's what I mean by that. We had a thousand people. Yeah. We had a thousand people, but do I look forward to going home? Do I have a relationship with my wife that I actually like who I celebrate this with? Do I actually have a, have an authentic relationship with my team? That's the moment after the moment, not while I'm on the stage because the stage can be a very empty place and it can also become a place for people who haven't worked out their psychological and ego-driven needs to be accepted to just hide from the reality of their, their internal state. And so I wanted to live in a place where when I come off the stage, that the moment after the moment is the place where I find my deepest fulfillment. That, that, that has served me really well because I think if I had continued on a track of, well, now 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, you can play that game forever and then you get there and you have an imagination of what there is like. Mm-hmm. And then you get there and it's no longer there. It's now here. <laughs> and there's a new there. And so success comes and then comes the pressure to sustain it. And when you're looking at success in your life, you, you see a certain dimension of it, but you don't see the burden of it. You see the benefits of it. And in your imagination, success feels one way because you're not factoring in what it's going to take to manage it and the complications that come along with it, as, as well as wondering, is this going to last? And I think that's why people who seem to have it all often admit to feeling really empty. So I've tried to design my leadership in my life in a way where I pay attention to that where what's out in front of me doesn't look empty so I don't end up in that spot that you talked about where everything seems to be going right on the surface, but I'm not dealing with what's happening within, either with my relationships or inside of myself, so I don't become a shell. I, I, had, the, I had the opportunity, John, to get around a lot of pastors who have been in it longer than me yeah. when I was very, very early in it, and I noticed that a few of the guys were doing it with joy, and a few of the guys seemed to be very confident at that point in their life. But a lot of other guys who had proven everything to everyone else still hadn't proven it to themselves. And they were in a very empty, hollow place. And I kind of wanted to learn what the other guys had done differently. Mm. And I found out that they moved their dashboards to the internal part of life instead of having them all on the outside. Yeah, we need to know how many people are coming. We need to know if this is growing. We need to know about the budget. But really, there are going to be times where all of those dashboards may say we're failing, but God is doing a work within us, and those are winning seasons too. And there's many different categories on this scorecard, and we can't just go by the ones that everybody sees. Oh, man, that, that is a powerful point. You know, and as we wrap up, we have about five minutes left, Stephen. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, you know, I'm just thinking about, you know, Peter and a lot of the, you know, the disciples in the Bible, they had this, you know, these conversations with Christ. They they were given assignments. It it was an event. And that's not really how things are happening today. A lot of people listening are really trying to connect to really what is that calling? What is that purpose? They even struggle with that question. Do I, you know, does God even want to use me? Um, what do you share with people uh, and just how they would maybe know or understand where they fit in God's plan in this kingdom. 
the thought that came to me while you were speaking is you're called where you are. Mm. You're called where you are. And it's just and that, this truth. And that also sounds like it's God's not differentiating. You are called. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you are called would be the first part of it. That's believing that in spite of all your conflicts, in spite of whatever addiction that you're dealing with, in spite of what opportunities you've blown up to this point, you're still called. Even if you're Moses on the backside of a desert, God gives it to us plainly. Even if you're David left out in the sheep field and nobody else even calls you in and Samuel comes in with the anointing oil, you are called. And the opposite of unqualified isn't qualified because we're never going to feel that way. We're never going to feel ready. Mm-hmm. The opposite of unqualified is called. So mm-hmm. you are called and you are called where you are. That, that second part is just as important. Um, I, I meet with people who, who are always telling me about what they're going to do for God. You know, you get around people who are, who are going to do this for God and going to do that for God. And God's going to, and going to, 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 going to. And my observation is that whatever God has for you next is directly connected to what's now. And everything you need for what's next in your life is in being obedient and faithful in what you have right now in this season. Um, there, there were seasons before I started the church where I felt very unproductive. There are seasons even today as the leader of a church that's growing that feel unproductive to me. Mm-hmm. But I have to trust that the seed and the watering, the plowing and the fertilization is every bit as important, if not more, than the harvest. So if you judge, here, here's what one great teacher said. I don't even know the attribution on this quote, but maybe someone can find it. I certainly, I certainly uh, live by this the best I can. To not judge this season of your life by the harvest that you're reaping, but by the seed that you're sowing. Mm. And that's so that's so liberating, John, that if you're not seeing it right now, that that doesn't mean that that the time is wasted. If 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 we parented this way, if we look for a harvest from our kids in the first, let's be honest, 18 years of their life, we would walk away from the task of parenting. And in a culture that's so obsessed with immediate gratification, uh, let me check that post. Did anybody like it? Did anybody comment on it? I mean, it's going to be harder and harder for us to keep this in mind that it's seed time harvest. And I feel like today we might be speaking to someone who is in that nebulous space called time, you know, seed time harvest. You know, I planted this. I'm here. I thought it was going to be this way. I'm disillusioned. I'm disappointed. Don't don't strip your seed out of the ground because you didn't see the blade that the day or the year that you sowed it. Some of these things God is rooting. And with that perspective, I think we can come into a come into a philosophy of our life that revolves more around faithfulness that ultimately leads to fruitfulness rather than always needing a quick fix. And the more we live our life in that place, like you said, these comparisons and insecurities and questions about whether any of it really matters, they're going to give way to our faith that, you know, God is working all things together for our good, for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Yeah. And so some of your most frustrating seasons are some of your most fruitful seasons, because in those seasons, it's what's happening beneath the soil that's preparing you for fruit. It's in those pruning seasons that God is preparing you for greater productivity. And it takes faith to believe this, but once you've seen God do it once in your life, 
you become familiar with it and you say, I've been here before. I don't feel it right now, but I'm not leading or living by what I feel or, or by what I see. I'm, I'm, I'm leading and living by what God has spoken over my life. Well, I love that. You know, as you're talking, I was in such that period of, you know, seed and, and time as I went through this long recovery. And you know what it forced me to do? Because uh, I had a choice every day. But it, every day I just chose to trust God a little bit more as I was letting go of myself and just wait in his presence. And it has now led me into a time where we're starting to see the harvest. But it's been a four-year process. And I love what you just shared, Stephen, because it just helped me reconnect to this process that I've gone through and, and you know where it's brought me today. Um, and I would not be ready today for what I think is unfolding next if I had not gone through the last three, four years of my life. And I wouldn't give up that period of time in that process uh, for anything because of who it's made me through this relationship in Christ. So I really appreciate you sharing that just for me personally. That just really helped me kind of recenter and re- just even reconnect on, on why that is so important. Wow. Uh, that, that, that statement you just made really blessed me. I was, I was reading a um, comedian's uh, reflection on his career the other day. And he was talking about all the callbacks that he didn't get and all the opportunities that other people got that he didn't get. And they asked him, did he resent that? And his statement shocked me. He said, I'm thankful for every single thing that I didn't get. I'm thankful for every single thing that I didn't get. And when I when I heard him say that and I realized that, you know, time does give you that perspective, you you probably would say this about everything that you've been through with your recovery and with your injury and the limitations, you know, I wouldn't necessarily choose it, but I wouldn't change it either. No. Because it was necessary for me to go through that, to become who I need to be for, for what God has called me to do. And that's a powerful perspective. It is. You know, and thank you. Thank you for making the time, being here and sharing this incredible message. Where, where can people find your book? Where can people connect to you, your church, your just everything that's going on? Could you share that? Well, thank you. Absolutely. Two sites, IamUnqualified.com for anyone who wants to download free resources about the message or actually access the book, IamUnqualified.com, as well as StephenFurtick.com, S-T-E-V-E-N-F-U-R-T-I-C-K.com. And there's messages there and inspiration there, and I hope people will check it out and enjoy it. All right, perfect. Stephen, thank you so much. Uh, You've you've blessed me. I know you've blessed our audience with this message, and um, I'll I'll be in prayer for you that God just continues to work through you, move through you, just to equip and empower more and more people to just take a hold of that life that God meant for them to live, that full life uh, that Christ talks about in John 10.10, and just embrace what God has planned for them and not how they see themselves today. So thank you, my friend. Uh, Awesome. Thank you, John. I loved it. It It's a great time.